0: All right. Hey, uh, I hope everybody is doing great. All six of our locations, those of you watching online, My name is Matt, one of the pastors on our team. Welcome to Rockbridge. Glad that you're here. Hey, before we jump into our our message, I just want to remind us and also make you aware if you don't, but uh, we want to pray for uh, the victims and the folks that are suffering from the the earthquakes that occurred in Syria and Turkey. And the beautiful thing about our church and the way we've tried to set up our, our budget and our giving is that we're already able right now to to be able to send funds and to that hopefully can be used to relieve suffering, but also proclaim Christ. So if you give to our church, thank you for that. A a large percentage of our budget goes and is already available to help. We've got uh, assistance that's going on in Ukraine. We're exploring another opportunity uh, with a church partner potentially in Ukraine. Uh, There's been a civil war of sorts in Ethiopia. We don't hear a lot about that, but it's been uh, equally violent and deadly. We're able to help into that. So just want to thank you for that. I want to pause and i our services. Let us pray for what's going on in the world all around us, not only in our communities, but across the globe, and that we are able, through our generosity and how uh, Christ has called us to seek his kingdom and bear witness to his love and his solution for all the evil in the world, which is life in him, salvation in him, and ultimately a, a forever kingdom reigned by him. Uh, let's pray that. Let's lead that. Let's give toward that. God, we come to you in your name want to pray, God, just for victims of this tragic earthquake, God, that reminds us the earth is broken, not as you intended it to be, but that you are making it right through the rain, the love, the good news of your son. So God, would you just keep using us, God, to do good deeds, but also to tell the good news? And so God, we pray for what's happening in Ukraine, Syria, Turkey, Ethiopia, Haiti, So many places, God, all over the world, so many places in our country and our communities that need the light of Christ and the love of Christ to break in and break through. So God, just continue to find our church available. Continue to find us generous. Continue to find us believing the promise that we can never, ever outgive you because you gave your son. In his name we pray, the name of Jesus, amen and amen. All right, so we are still navigating through Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians. We're going verse by verse through this incredible letter. It's answering so many questions. We've talked about lawsuits we've talked about gender and and, and gender roles we have talked we've talked about speaking in tongues we have talked about so many things that even to our day in our day cause confusion and create issues now what we're in a, a special section chapters 13, 12 13 and 14 where paul begins dealing with issues that arise inside the church and inside worship gatherings and then in 1 Corinthians 13, which you might have heard at a wedding or something, it's kind of called the love chapter, what Paul does is he shifts the focus from what's going on in the church to how. And, and, and what I would say is this is, a fo- this is a shift that we need to make a lot as well because a lot of times we ask people, what do you do and who, are, who do you know, but we never talk so much about how. Right. Like it's one thing to talk to someone, but how do you talk to someone? Do you talk to someone harshly or gently, right? It's one thing that, hey, what I do is, and, and you spell out your career or how you make a living. Well, how do you do it? How, how do you go about your job? What, what's the attitude? What's the countenance? What's the tone of that? And, and what I have found to be true in my life and, and where I get things wrong is I don't realize sometimes that how I do something is more important than what I do. As long as what I do is not sinful, but I can do something that's not sinful, but how I do it can be in a sinful way. And and, and so Paul shifts the focus on how we are to go about living life or exercising spiritual gifts. If you were here last week, that's sort of where Paul's train of thought is, and we'll see that in the text in a few minutes. But if you could just ask yourself, if you could just pause for a minute and think about all the things you do and you have to do, work, marriage, parenting, Uh, budgeting, all the things you, all the what's that you have to do, and pause that for just a minute and say, how am I doing it? And am I doing it in in a way that would be prescribed by God? Am I doing it the the right way? It's not about what often, it's how. Into that, Paul speaks. We're going to catch up where we left off and and then push forward. So, at the end of chapter 12, He kind of comes back and talks about spiritual gifts. He says, now you are the body of Christ, which is the church, and individual members of it. So God puts believers together in a church, in a church setting, and then he gives them spiritual gifts. And he talks through some of those. He says, as God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, miracles, gifts of healing, helping, leading, and various kinds of tongues. And then he kind of says, hey, we all don't have the same gifts. These are the what's that show up in the church. Are all apostles? Rhetorical question, answer is no. Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all do miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But he says, desire the greater gifts. That'll come into focus next week. And I will show you an even better way. So this is what or some of the what that goes on inside church. But he says, I'm going to show you how. Everything needs to be done. And he says this, If I speak in human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So in the Corinthian church, they were pretty proud that they had a lot of ecstasy experiences and they spoke in tongues and it's highly experiential and, and they were proud of that. And Paul's like, hey, you can do all that if you want to, but don't claim to be spiritual just because you do something spiritual if you don't do it with love. I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mystery and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, using Jesus' words, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and if I give over my body in order to boast, he's talking about martyrdom or sacrifice, physical sacrifice, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So, bottom line, how do we live as Christ followers? What do we have to absolutely get right? So, we can get prophecy right or tongues right. We can get coming to church right. We can do a lot of what's, but if we don't get love right, a.k.a. love is the bottom line, Paul says, the Word of God says, we're nothing. Now, h- here's the crazy thing. I was thinking about this uh, as I was getting ready. I was, I was thinking about this. Everybody agrees to some extent. Love is the answer to a lot of challenges and a lot of problems. In fact, this weekend, there's a big game called Super Bowl, right? And you're going to see this on the back of, of several of the players' helmets. It's one of the approved, kind of NFL-approved logos, slogans. And, and so here it is, right? Choose love. And, and everybody sort of like, that makes us feel good, and everybody's good with that. And we recognize there is tremendous power in love. But the, the, what we don't agree is how does love actually look? How does love actually show up? And if you really get underneath the definition of what I'll call pop love or popular culture love, there's kind of some problems with it. There's some kind of problems with it. So we can say this and we can say it as a slogan, but if we don't understand how love actually operates and how love actually works, then then it it could be kind of pointless or useless. So let me explain that. Pop culture love or pop love. Choose love, right? It's conditional. At some point, people will quit loving. Or you have to meet conditions to be deemed lovable. Right? I mean, we even have a phrase. I don't love you anymore. I've fallen out of love with you. And, and, and the, the, that saying that there are certain conditions or you're not lovable to me, there's certain conditions that aren't, if they're not met, then love is going to be withheld or withdrawn or forfeited or lost. Okay, so love is conditional. That's not like a safe place to be ultimately, all right? Pop love is subjective. We sort of define what it means to love me, right? If you did this or you didn't do that, you don't love me, right? We define love as, with this subjectiveness. Like love, I'll let you do whatever you want to do because you do you and I'll do me. That's loving, right? Right? Well, at some point, that subjectivity devolves in this, into selfishness, and if you, if you can't agree what love actually is and how love actually operates, sooner or later, two people who are trying to choose love are going to choose different versions of it, which is a problem. And then pop love is often based on our mood in the moment. You ever said, I just don't feel like it? Right, as if love itself is just subjective to our moods, and we're all very moody at times, right? So choose love sounds good. Love is love sounds great. Hey, let's just love each other and everybody will be great. But if we don't understand how love actually looks, operates, shows up in relationships, shows up in our world, shows up in society, we've got a problem. And, and so ultimately, pop love is not really steadfast, it's not secure, and it's ultimately destructive. It's ultimately destructive because if we can't agree how love actually looks and how love actually shows up and how love actually functions when you get two people together, and I guarantee you anytime you get two or more people together, sooner or later two or more people are going to do unlovely things because we're sinners. So how does that work? How does that work? Well, Paul, what he's going to do, he's not going to define love in 1 Corinthians 13. He's going to describe how true love works and how it shows up through people, how it shows up in your marriage, how it shows up in your workplace, how it shows up in your small group, how it shows up in a thousand different areas. He's going to focus on that, and he starts in 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 4 with 15 descriptions of how love looks. And here they are. You've probably heard them. Maybe you even had them said at your wedding. But this is not a passage that was given for couples at marriages. It was given to Christ followers. Here's how love, true love, shows up. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So, so pretty powerful. Now what I want us to do is, I want, if we just imagine Paul is describing uh, like a mountain, and you, know, you can never see all of a mountain. You'd have to walk around a mountain or get a panoramic shot. So if we're walking around, and this is the mountain of love, and he says he's patient, it's not rude, it's not irritable, to help us describe that mountain that we're walking around through God's Word this weekend, I, I want to share three broad categories that these 15 descriptors would fit under, okay? They are three categories for descriptors of love. The first category is true love is durable. True love does not have quit-itis. True love endures. It perseveres. Even when sinned against, even when wronged. Now, that's key, right? Because pop culture love is conditional. True love, biblical love is durable. It hangs in there. And and listen to me. Listen. Every heart, every soul, every life listening to me right now, your soul needs true love. If you have a story of conditional love, If you have a story of love trauma or love hurt, where love was withheld or love was denied or you didn't meet a condition, you have a wound on your heart and in your soul that only the true love, we'll show where it's found in a moment, can touch, heal, and change and transform. And if we don't get true love right, you know what we pass on in our marriages and to our kids and even within our churches? Pop culture love. And that's a problem because we need true love. So true love, first category, is durable. Second category, walking around this mountain, true love is not fueled by pride. True love is not fueled by the part of us that wants to make it about us. And all of us have that part, right? There's a part of us that wants to make everything about us. Even people who suffer from fear and insecurity, fear and insecurity still makes it about you or makes it about me. So true love is not fueled by pride. It is directed toward others. And it's not saying, how can I get something out of this for me? It's not quid pro quo. If you will, I will. It is fueled by something entirely different. And then third, the third category of these 15 descriptors, true love is actually a positive catalyst that takes the initiative, takes action toward good and right, toward good and right. So all 15 of those descriptors fit underneath one of those three broad categories as we walk around the mountain of Paul describing what true love is. Now, I'll even give two other categories that these three fit underneath just so we get an understanding of what Paul's doing. First is, there's our reactive pattern. How do I react when I am wronged? That's the category Paul's talking about. Here's how true love responds, reacts when sinned against. Everybody here has been, or is being, or will be sinned against. It's true in every marriage. It's true in every church. It's true in every job, sports team. We get sinned against, okay? And we sin against others. So true love has a reaction or a reactive pattern when wronged. True love also has to react against our prideful impulses. Everybody has prideful impulses. Everybody wants to self-promote, self-protect. Everybody can get overwhelmed by insecurity. You've still got an eye in insecurity, right? You have to react against prideful impulses. So that is one of the patterns of love. Now let me say this. You've heard me say it before. It is way easier to act like a Christian than to react like one, okay? We're going to church. Oh, okay, how's everybody doing, right? After church, to the waitress at the restaurant. Ask waitresses and, rest- and restaurants and waiters what's their least favorite time to work. Sunday after church. Because it's easier to act like a Christian for an hour than to react like one when the waitress doesn't meet your expectations. So it's easier to act like a Christian than react like one. And, and, and additionally to that, our reactions, especially to non-ideal events and relational interactions are actually an opportunity. So what, what Paul presents is true love takes non-ideal events or non-ideal interactions, when wrong, when sinned against, and he, creates an, and he says they're an opportunity. So that, that's one reactive, the reactive pattern. Then we have our proactive pattern, which is what we're just trying to do, take the initiative to do all of that around this mountain of love. So here's what we want to do. We're going to talk about these three, these three broad categories and see if we can't get love right and see if we can't learn how love should show up. All right, now, here's the first category. So let me do this by way of a visual. All right, so let's, let's imagine <coughs> that in relationships, you know, we're pretty close, right? We, we, we fit together, we get together. But when, we, when something happens, when you do something that doesn't meet an expectation— When you do something that lets me down or hurts me or I do something that hurts Beth or hurts my boys or I bother them or frustrate them or uh, dads, we embitter our children or exasperate our children. Here's what happens. A gap is created. The gap represents what I expected and what I received, what I thought was love and what I got instead, what I hoped for my marriage and what happened in my marriage. You, you, You follow? That's the gap. The question we have to ask is, what do I put in that gap? What do I put in that gap? What happens when I'm sinned against? What happens when I'm let down, disappointed? What do I do in that gap? So let me phrase it into into the question. The how question is, how do I react when I am hurt, when I am let down, when I am bothered or disappointed or dealing with, an unmet expectation. What goes in the gap? Suspicion? Anger? Revenge? What goes in the gap? We've all got a tendency of what we do in the gap. Now, there's kind of two broad extremes of, that rea- of how we react when a gap is created. When We can give up. Just quit. Stand off, move away, Grow, grow apart, all those things, right? Or we can be go rash and reckless with counter moves. Like, oh, you did that, and here's what I'm going to do, right? And, that, and, and anger can fit in that category. We can get cynical in our marriages. We can get bitter toward our churches. We can, we can get frustrated at our boss or our work environment, and it just stays that way because we don't know how to deal with the gap. But Paul has described what or how love looks when a gap is created. What does he say? It's patient. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So what Paul is saying is, hey, when a gap is created, we don't want to keep the gap there. We want to build a bridge to get back to unity or get back to fellowship or get back to 100%. You know, the gap makes us we're not 100%, we're 50%, we're 40%, we're 95%. God wants us to build bridges to get us to 100%. Now, where does that come from, and then how do we promote it in our relationships? Well, the first thing is, it's obvious. When we look at patience, no record of wrong, bears, believes, hopes all things, endures all things, Paul is basically saying, hey, remember the gospel. The gospel is the ultimate bridge builder. Because we created a gap between God and did God. God has not given up on a single person in this room, on a single person watching online. God has not given up. God's love is not conditional. And what did we say? Your heart needs unconditional love. Your heart needs that. And the gospel bridges the gap. Sinful Matt, holy God. What did God put in the gap? His Son for me, instead of me, so God could have a right relationship with me, right? So, so when Paul says these things, he's saying, hey, look, The love that we receive from Christ, not the love you may have received in your first marriage, not the love that you may have received, you know, from your parents because they might have given you unperfect or hurt or hurt or whatever or trauma. Not the love of a Hallmark movie, but the love that you receive from Christ, that's the love that you want to show up in your relationships. That's the love that goes in the gap. And it is. A bridge-building love. When there was a gap so far between me and God, God bridged the gap with the cross, the death, the blood of His Son. That's what goes in the gap. So, as we keep pressing through remembering the gospel, a couple other things about the gap. We have to practice what I call strategic patience. I was reading this verse, 1 Timothy 1:16. I'm not going to put it up here, but it just says it says that God's patience is never ending or unlimited. And that's God toward us. So it it takes time sometimes to close br- or build bridges. It takes time to close these gaps, but we practice patience with other people because God was patient for us with us. And then we have to choose forgiveness. I, I put choose deliberately because I think a lot of people don't for, don't put, would say feel forgiveness. Forgiveness is a decision of your will, not of your emotions. We choose to seek forgiveness when we create a gap. We choose to give forgiveness when others create a gap. Because how, Why do we do that? Because God in Christ has forgiven us. So, first category. What happens when I'm sinned against? What happens when I sin against other people? Yes, a gap is created. But instead of living with the gap, we build a bridge. We reflect and show the love that we have and that we have received from Christ. Now, there's a second category. And this second category has to do with our pride. Now, here's the thing about pride. I have a little monster up here, right? Now, he's kind of a cute monster, right? right? But here's the thing. No matter how cute this monster is, right? And this is actually a toy monster, right? So people actually buy this. No matter how cute a monster is, monsters always make a mess. There's a monster that lives inside of Matt Evans. There's a monster. Please don't be offended. There's a monster that lives inside of you, and it's called a me monster. It's the monster of pride. It's the monster of of what about me? It's the monster of I want my deal, my agenda, my will to be done. So we have that inside of us. It's part of our sin nature. So the how question is how do I react to my monster of pride or personal preference and self-promotion. Because eventually, anybody who's been married, anybody who has kids, anybody who's been on a sports team, anybody who's been a part of a business or an organization, right, here's the deal. You have shown your me monster, and you have received the me monsters of other people. And it always creates a mess. Marriages, sports teams, businesses, churches, Bible studies, you name it. When this comes out, mess comes, back, comes out too, right? It's a me monster. So we have to react against that or this will kill, crush, destroy any chance of true love. So how do we do that? Well, offer a couple of suggestions. The first one is this. We need to identify how and when the monster comes out. And sometimes the monster masquerades. But the monster shows up. How and when does the me monster? How does it come out of us? How does it show up? So here's a couple of questions. Here's the things we got to realize. The question is not if I have pride, if I have a me monster living inside of me. The question is, where does it show up, and when? Where does it show up, and when? So think about this. What's, when, when are you most tempted to look down on other people? When other people lack something that you have, how do you respond? Do, are you like, well, they're not smart enough or they don't have my, my, my lifestyle or my standard of living or my dress? Sometimes religion, right? We think we're better than other people. We become, it was called being self-righteous, right? That's a form, that's a manifestation Of the me monster. When are you more tempted to think more highly of yourself than you ought? And then we come to Paul describing love as we're walking around the mountain, and he says, "What? It does not envy. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not irritable." So he's like, "If love is going to show up and how love operates, there cannot be the the me monster. Cannot be allowed to manifest. We have to slay the monster." How do we slay the monster? We preach the gospel to our pride. Pride dies in two places. In the pits of hell or at the foot of the cross. It's two places. Pride will die at the foot of the cross when you see that I, my me, put Christ there. I should have been there. It's humbling and yet doesn't break us, but restores us. That's the beautiful thing about the cross. Doesn't break us, but it doesn't. It doesn't destroy us. It it, it humbles us, but then God loves us through the cross. So we preach the gospel to our pride, and we slay the monster. And you, you, you can never just once you get sad. Once you say, "I'm not a prideful person," you become a prideful person, right? Hey, I, I I was humble, then I got proud about it, right? It's one of those things, okay. It's constantly being vigilant. And, and I'll tell you one of the greatest passages that I've ever encountered that's helped me with my me monster, okay? comes from the Apostle Paul. Paul, remember, murdered Christians, imprisoned Christians, and became a Christian and wrote most of the New Testament. And when Paul's talking about himself, he makes this incredible statement. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Here's the gospel. Jesus Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. Now, he's not ranking, you know, like saying, oh, this guy's worse and this guy's worse like we do. He's just saying, look, before I judge anybody, and before I look out the window, I look in the mirror. And I am, in Paul's mind, nobody did more to put Christ on the cross than himself. When he sees himself in that light, the me monster is slayed. Because he's, he's always going to operate from a position of humble love Toward other people. And and I'll tell you something. I don't always live this. But I'm going to tell you one of Matt Evans is when I'm at my best in Christ, not in my flesh, my me monster is subdued, I see myself in my marriage, in my family, I'm the worst sinner. I'm the chief sinner. So I would ask you in your family, in your marriage, in your small group, if you truly understand what Jesus did for you, and how he took your sins, it is really hard, really hard to be more upset at other people's sins than you are your own sins. So like I, I say this to all the couples in the room. Who's the chief sinner in your marriage? If you're looking out the window, that sooner or later the me monster will make a mess. And true love will not manifest. So when you're thinking about your me monster, I would encourage you to preach to your me monster. Preach gospel to your me monster. Here's how it can look. King Jesus is sovereign over me. So I don't have to take control. So I don't have to worry about who is in control. King Jesus is sovereign over me. Because the monster comes out, When I think I've got to control, I've got to take charge, I've got to do this. If I don't, it won't, then I won't, okay? And you keep preaching to your me monster. King Jesus and his love define me. I'm not defined by other people. I'm not defined by possessions. I'm not defined by power, popularity. King Jesus and his love define me. And you keep preaching. And you say, King Jesus and his promises, they guide me, they direct me. I will not let my preferences become principles. I will not let my pride be the pilot. I will let his promises direct me. And you keep preaching to your me monster. King Jesus and his love, that flows through me. That's God's will for me. And your me monster stays at the foot of the cross and doesn't get in the driver's seat of your life. Third category, walking around the 15 descriptors. Third category has to do with, we've talked about reacting against our pride, reacting when we're wronged. The third category is what I would like to call the green light. That we have a green light from God. We're not always in reaction mode. This is go mode. And this is, this, this is how do I take the initiative and act as a positive catalyst for good? How do I, how do I show forth love? I, I'm not waiting. I don't have to call a prayer meeting. I don't have to think about it. I have a green light from God. Here's what Paul says in his word. Love is kind. You never have to wait to be kind. You never have to say, well, they did this to me, so I'm going to do this. No, love is kind. Love is kind. Yeah, but you don't know how they said that about me. Love is kind. It's always kind. You know, we have this saying let's go do random acts of kindness. You know what's more biblical than random acts of kindness? Constant acts of kindness. Constant, continual displays, perpetual displays of kindness. So, love is kind. And love finds no joy in unrighteousness or evil, but rejoices in the truth. So right there, you have a green light, two of them. You pursue a constant posture of kindness toward others, and you champion the truth. The truth that emanates from and points back to Jesus Christ. You champion truth with a posture of kindness. Now listen, we live in a world right now, That is a rage monster world. You listen to the State of the Union and listen to congressmen, like how they talk back. That's just rage, okay? Well, we voted for those people, so we got to look in the mirror, not out the window, okay? That's just rage, and it's ridiculous, right? It's not Christ-like. It's not biblical. Half of those people say, well, they're Christians. Come on. Well, then act like one and react like one, right? But that's just a reflection of the people that elected them. Go online. Is most of the online discourse on social media, is it marked by kindness or is it marked by reactionary meanness, vileness, cynicism, bitterness, and suspicion? Let me tell you something. That None of that flows from the kindest act ever done. It doesn't. So we have to arrest that. And proactively choose a posture of kindness that points people to the truth of Jesus Christ. The truth of the gospel. The truth of what true love actually looks like. And we've just talked through 15 descriptors, three categories, proactive and reactive. This is what love looks like. Now the beautiful thing about this is how Paul concludes it in in verses 8 through 13. And, and, and the way I want us to look at this, and you'll see it in the text, uh, is a phrase that I heard from a guy. I've read all his stuff. He's passed away now. His name's Dallas Willard. You hear me talk about him all the time. So he's dying of, of pancreatic cancer, and he says some things to his granddaughter, and then his granddaughter later makes remarks at his memorial service, and she closes with a phrase that he would say to her before he would go into a test or before he would go into a procedure. And you know how we have this phrase, give him hell, and everybody gets fired up. I'm going to give him hell, right? Dallas Willard said this, give them heaven. Give them heaven. See, we, 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 none of us Christians listen, Christ followers listen. And some of you that are not yet Christians, I know sometimes you're not a Christian because of Christians. I, I admit that. We should never be give them hell people. We should give them heaven. Now listen to what Paul says. Love never ends. That means heaven the eternal life is marked by love. And he says all these things that we currently do, what we do, prophecies, they'll come to an end. There'll be a time, we don't, there'll be a time I'll be unemployed. Preaching, teaching, they'll come to an end. Tongues, and you Corinthians, y'all are so proud of your tongues, they're going to go away. As for knowledge, special knowledge, it's going to end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, new kingdom, new heaven, new earth, eternal life, Jesus fully on the throne, the world fully restored to the way he intended it, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child and I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I put aside childish things. So growing up is growing up to be more Christ-like in how we love. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Heaven is a world of love. Church, let's give them heaven. Let's give them heaven. Now I want to suggest three areas of possible next steps for you and for me. And then we'll pray, and we'll let the Holy Spirit direct us. Here they are. First one is this. Forgive or seek forgiveness. I would venture to believe there are people in this room that are holding on to hurt, and you need to forgive. I would venture to believe there are people in this room, and you know you've created a gap but you've done nothing to build a bridge, and you need to go and seek forgiveness. Give them heaven. Give them Jesus because of the gospel. Secondly, some folks, our pride is controlling us in a relationship, in a circumstance, in a situation. Would you let it go? Would you let go of your rights? Would you let go of your preferences? Would you let go of your expectations that, gosh, she's never going to be able to meet him? He's never going to be able to meet him. They're not Jesus. Just let it go. If your pride is driving something relationally, slay that monster and let it go. And then the the third invitation is go at your green light. What do you do if someone if the light turns green and the car in front of you doesn't move? Right? God has given us a green light. Not for random acts of kindness. Constant. Let no marriage in this room or in these venues this weekend, let no marriage be ma- be marked by random acts of kindness, but constant perpetual acts of kindness. Don't go to work and be randomly kind. Be constantly, continually kind. Don't go on social media and rage because you have courage behind your keyboard. Display kindness. Champion the truth. God's given us the green light. Let's bow our heads close our eyes. God, Holy Spirit, I, I ask you to direct us today. Lord, there may be some people that today need to come to the cross and seek forgiveness from you. And I ask you to be their Lord and Savior. Green light. You've done everything. You've built the bridge. We just got to walk across it in faith and choose Christ. God, I want to pray that a spirit of forgiveness sweeps over our church. Where we would seek it when we cause a gap. And we would give it when others create a gap. And God, I pray that pride would continually be slayed and left at the cross so we can represent you, Jesus, more beautifully, more passionately, more obediently, and more continually. Lord Jesus, be glorified by your disciples and that we are known to be your disciples as you say in your word by how we love one another. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.